One of the natural and I think rather beautiful effects of engaging in the practice as we've been doing is the way in which we begin to feel our sense of care and concern for each other deepen in any number of different ways it comes to us as teachers we hear from people about their care and concern for others in different ways. One of the uh, expressions of that just recently, we uh, failed to mention something important when we spoke about dana, and a number of uh, questions and concerns arising as to uh, whether Luis would be taken care of in this regard. And uh, we're sorry we didn't tell you, and uh, as Luis and we know, in fact, we will very happily and uh, gratefully share uh, appropriate proportion of the dana with Luis for his offering of the yoga, which we're all very grateful for. And uh, I didn't get to say it earlier, but I, I remember my first retreat very well. It's imprinted on my mind and my body, and uh, I wouldn't have survived it without the yoga, yoga class that was offered. It was offered at five in the morning, so you had to really want to go there. <laughs> but it was good. And uh, I've heard similarly appreciation for the yoga class on this course. So thank you, Luis. And uh, thank you also for the concern for those of you who wanted to make sure that there was an appropriate taking care of um, that situation. That sense of a compassionate response, that sense of caring for, becoming aware of and wishing to take care of that which needs to be taken care of in our world. This is really the, the theme of what I'd like to speak about this evening. We uh, received a note from someone amongst you, uh, I think this morning, sort of, well, and the, the short version of the note was, well, if this isn't about self-improvement, what's it about? <laughs> Good question. Because clearly there is a way in which we might understand a certain developmental, cultivational orientation that seems to be about bringing forth wholesome things that in one sense we could think of as about self-improvement. It's not like that's prohibited. But there is a way in which <laughs> there is a way in which we understand it within a really much a larger context and focus here, in which it's not so much about self-improvement, we could say, as bringing into the world more of what is wholesome and beautiful through our lives, of course, through our hearts, our minds, our bodies. And if we want to call that self-improvement, that's okay. But for me, it's actually something more than that. And there's a process of understanding exactly what it is that we're calling ourselves, starting to see more clearly what it is not, starting to understand through the development of wisdom the way in which we are bound and identified with a sense of self, a sense of self that is particularized or revealed by the way in which it creates or infers a sense of being separate from. So when the Buddha talked about self, he talked about seeing things, not taking them as self, we've talked about that, but also about understanding that whatever we conceive of in terms of self, if we conceive that as separate, if we conceive that as apart from what else is around us, then we find ourselves in a relationship to life that is limited, that is constricted. 
that is fundamentally unsatisfying, unfulfilling. To see we're not the owner of our experience from one perspective of wisdom, it's to see we do not need to enact the patterns of reactivity compulsively and habitually. And we've talked about this a lot, but what as we begin to free ourselves from those patterns, what we see naturally starting to emerge. This isn't something we necessarily need to do, but of course we can support it. What naturally starts to emerge is a sense of care, of sensitivity, and of concern for and well-wishing towards the entirety of life. To see that there is ultimately no boundary in the place where we have imagined one to be. That what we have called inside and labelled me and what we've called outside and called you or the world, that those are ways of talking and relating that from our deepest experience, in fact, do not reflect what is most true. That this appearance, this arising, this construction and formation of things, of selves, is just that, a construct, a formation, and that at the heart of all profound and transforming spiritual wisdom and teachings is this recognition that takes us into a territory that's not easy to articulate, that's not easy to conceive, but that the implication of and that the outflow from the understanding of it is a sense of ever-increasing care. And sometimes when things are quiet and still, we notice a certain settling of the mind, the heart, the body. We feel the way in which the touch of life speaks to us, resonates within us. And a number of you have come and, and spoken with us and certainly some of the interviews in recent days that I've had, very lovely, delightful to hear that sense of being touched by experience, just opening into the simplicity, the immediacy, but also the resonance with what it is we're in touch with. And that way in which, in a kind of way we could describe it, as kind of like life gets in. Gets into what feels to be the innermost core depths of our sensitivity and our own, what we call our life. We're touched. What's outside touches what's inside. And as that contact moves through what we call the boundary between inside and outside, it starts to reveal that, in fact, that distinction that we make, although functional and useful in many circumstances for many purposes, it's not the deepest truth of our life. And it begins to become porous. It begins to become more ephemeral. It begins to dissolve as we wake up. And the very journey of waking up, seeing into both the emptiness of self and the indivisibility of life that is the implication of that, this is at the heart of this teaching. That we are part of, not just connected to, not just close by, with, and affected by, but so inextricably woven into life that we cannot, 
in any ultimately defensible way hold ourselves apart from it. Christina mentioned last night Shantideva, the uh, wonderful teacher who lived in India in the 6th century. And his uh, expression of a commitment to the transformation and the liberation of all beings and all the practicing of all paths. He, in his, in his, I think, kind of, I don't know, seminal, remarkable, brilliant uh, text, the, the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, or the Bodhicharya Vatara, which is the, the Bodhisattva is one who's committed their life to the liberation of all beings, to the welfare of all beings. Uh, Bodhi is, uh, is both, uh, well, primarily it's awakening, but it's also got the sense of, of compassion in it and a being who's set on awakening for the welfare of all beings. And in this, um, in this text, he speaks at one point rather, for me, very touchingly, and he talks about our relationship to life. He says, just as we see these limbs as part of this body, can we not see all beings as limbs of embodied life? Can we not see that what is around us is actually a reflection of ourself in another form? It's not something other or different beyond the shape and the appearance it takes. And again, if we think about this too much, it's easy to confuse ourselves and entangle ourselves. It's something we have to listen to and see. What, what is it that happens in us when we listen to the world? This is the position, this is the orientation of compassion, of listening to the world, listening to ourselves. What happens when we hear a cry of pain? from someone we care about. Isn't it a natural response that we want to care for them? That we want to reach out to them? That we want to find some way to support them? When we're not caught in the patterns of reactivity that are so constrictive and binding, the natural response of the heart, the natural response of a human being that is freed from that constriction, that limitation, is to to care and to act upon that caring in the world. And so, Shantideva goes on to talk about the sense of caring for others. He says, when acting on behalf of others, no no amazement arises in me, just as when feeding myself, I expect nothing in return. That sense of to act in behalf of others is the most natural expression of one's life. Equally natural is simply feeding oneself. Not doing it in order to get something. Any more that I feed myself in order to get something. It's complete. There's a circle. There's a giving and a receiving in that. And we were speaking today about, in the, in the context of the giving and receiving, that's a, a foundation and a framework for everything that's happening here at IMS and on this retreat, in which we are all partaking in a process of giving and receiving. And 
when the foot is sore. The hand just naturally rubs it. Have you had that experience at the end of the sitting? Something's a bit tender. The hand just goes out there and gives it a bit of a, a rub. It doesn't think about it and say, well, you know, I think I'll do a good deed today. I'm going to rub that sore foot. But, you know, it'd be better give me some payback at some point. It's just a natural thing. The hand is connected to the foot. It rubs the foot. Of course, at some other point in the day, the hand gets to hang out in the pocket while the foot has to do all the work slipping down the path. You know, they're not keeping score. They're not keeping score. It's a completely natural thing happening. And we see hand and we see foot. And we talk about them. And clearly, we know these are different things, aren't they? Who would argue with that? This is a hand, that's a foot. I don't know if you can see my foot, but you can you know, see your own foot, perhaps. Or just notice, oh yeah, this is like that, that's like that. But, but where does the hand stop and the foot begin? Where does that happen? We can draw a line with our mind, maybe at the wrist or the ankle, but there's no line there. There's nothing that stops there, this hand and this foot. They're not two things. You know, we could say it's a hand foot with a bit of extra complication in between. <laughs> and, you know, with some apology maybe to our teacher of human anatomy or wherever we might have <laughs> learned about basic biology, there's something that's true about that. There's something that's true about that. That I think we begin to recognize, to sense and to know more and more deeply as we give ourselves more and more fully to this practice, to this path and to our life. And so in this teaching, we talk about compassion, this quality of heart and mind, as being that quality which is opposed to harmfulness or to cruelty, that has quite the opposite quality, but actually the, that wishes for the release from suffering, for the well-being, for the caring of, that trembles in the presence of pain and has the wish to respond to it. When we're connected, when we're in touch, when we're in our actual experience, and not in the stories, not in the reactive patterns, it's incredibly natural how we respond in that way. The wish to relieve suffering, the wish to contribute to well-being for others and for ourselves. When we're open, when we're connected, when we allow ourselves to be touched by our own life, by the life of others around us, by the life of the, the world, this arises. And it's important, I think, and useful to distinguish it from pity, which is that quality that kind of thinks the suffering's over there and, you know, I'm sorry, but there's a kind of a distance involved. Oh, you know, it's tough for those people who are suffering over there. Or... Well, it's tough for me, my suffering. It's kind of over there. Do you have a sense of what that's like? The way in which when we kind of make it somewhere else or someone else's? 
that we easily feel distant, we feel separate from it. And we might care about it, but it doesn't really move us to do something about it. We might feel like I should do something about it if we feel pity. But that should has its own pattern of pressure and unsustainability to it. Compassion arises from the recognizing of the shared dimension of our existence, the shared element of suffering, of dukkha, of struggle in the lives that we are touched by, in the lives that are around us, in the lives that we experience within ourselves. The life, we could say, or the lives, because it seems they can take so many forms. The, uh, the image and the sort of the association very much with the, the, the practice of the bodhisattva, of the, the dedication of one's life to compassionate practices to, to, to liberate all beings. Again, I think in the quote Christina used last night, you know, sentient beings are numberless. I vow to liberate them. And yet, interestingly, if you've been paying attention, you've probably noticed numberless sentient beings, in a sense, arising within ourselves. So many different forms and shapes we take. Fluid, morphing from one into another. And all these beings too. We're interested in the freeing, the liberating, the releasing from suffering and ultimately from entanglement and bondage. And it's compassion, it's feeling with. It's feeling with. So it's not somebody else's suffering. When we feel the tenderness in our heart in the presence of someone else's difficulty that we are connected with or care about, we think, I feel your pain. No, actually, we feel our own pain. We feel our own pain. We can't actually feel their pain, in a sense. But we're touched by their pain in such a way that we feel our own because we know what it is to feel pain to feel struggle, to feel limitation. We have that experience. And in understanding that and allowing ourselves to be touched in that way, the sense of connection, the sense of something shared becomes more clear more strong. And it's interesting how when we go to the group interviews in, the, in this retreat and other retreats perhaps, and we hear about each other's struggles. And I mean, sometimes we get to hear about the wonderful, enjoyable, delicious things that are happening for our companions, but actually quite a lot of the time what we get to hear about is the, the really challenging and difficult things that are happening for them, equally as getting to share from ourselves. And isn't it interesting? Do you notice the sense? I notice it. Very clearly, how a sense of affection, how a sense of connection, how a sense of warmth, this random group of people who we may have never met before and may never meet again, we spend a couple of, you know, 45 minutes to an hour periods with them, hearing a few minutes from each, and at the end of it, there can be a real sense of warmth and connection. It's like something shared is recognized, is revealed in that. And it starts to break down the, the painful and suffocating and desperately unfulfilling condition or unfulfilled condition of feeling separate from. 
of feeling separate from that which is around us. This is a profound malaise that we can be caught in. To imagine that we are apart from all this out of which we have emerged. To imagine that we are apart from the very soil out of which all nutrients nutrients that have nourished our body and the very air and the very warmth of the sun without which we wouldn't exist for more than minutes. To imagine somehow that we're separate from all of this and from all the other expressions that likewise, all the life, the beings, the creatures, the plants. To imagine that we're separate from all of this when we could not exist without it all being here. This is a profound malaise. And if we live from that belief, we see the harm, the suffering, the destruction and devastation within inner lives and within worldly circumstances. Allowing ourselves to be open in this way is not easy. We are impacted in ways that at some level we try to defend ourselves against. But in practice, part of the journey and part of the important journey, or an important part of the journey, is the way as we slowly soften, as we slowly open, as we as we come back again and again into the body, it's as if that very quality of attentiveness, of sensitivity, of mindfulness, of presence, it's like moisture into the sometimes dry and arid ground of our body, of our heart, of our being. And it starts to bring moisture and it starts to bring fluidity. And with that comes feeling, comes sensitivity, comes the capacity to resonate with, to touch and be touched by. And that openness, that resonance, that sensitivity is something we have to go gently with and yet not shy away from. As we learn to open to and meet those places of difficulty, of struggle, of disconnection or alienation, of fear or of loneliness within ourselves, of anger, of despair, of confusion, as we learn to meet those places in ourselves, allow ourselves to be We could say softened, worked maybe, by that contact, by those moments of experience, those periods of experience. We likewise find ourselves touched and moved and open to and able to stay open in the presence of those difficult experiences in others. And so compassion is both the sensitizing, or it comes through the sensitizing, the the willingness, the courage to be open to our suffering and the suffering of others around us, the suffering of the world around us. And it's not just that resonance, that vibration, that's part of it, that's a foundation for it, but what it actually comes with, and again, naturally, when the heart is open, when we're not bound in our patternings and our fears, in our sense of neediness, when there's an openness there, it comes as a response. There's a movement in it that's active, that's engaged and engaging. And it may be simply the thought of wishing well that another being 
be free from their suffering. Or that a situation in the world be transformed in a beneficial way. And it can be a word spoken of kindness or care. It can be something by way of deed, action of body. But that sense of action or response is part of, an essential part of what compassion is pointing to when we speak about it in spiritual terms, when we speak about it as one of the two wings of the bird, without which, in a way that we could say, the heart, mind, the spirit cannot fly. Wisdom and compassion are required. The wisdom that sees deep into the truth of things and the compassion that actually responds with care, with a wish to transform and relieve the suffering in this world, each other and ourselves. It's important to understand as we go through this territory, as we engage in this journey, that we must be respectful of our own limits. We need to know when that's enough and be able to say, actually, for now, I'm just going to pause. And we've spoken about that with our bodies to know, you know, that's actually long enough sitting cross-legged. I think I'm going to straighten that leg out now. Or, you know, that's enough when we're engaging maybe in something in the world to know I need to pause, I need to rest. It's not about somehow making a project out of this. That's where we get caught perhaps in a in a kind of a doing, in a kind of a selfing in the ways we've talked about, where I somehow start to project an idea of what I must do and I have to fulfill. And what I'm speaking about here is not to in any way suggest or encourage that kind of often unrealistic and even grandiose and often somehow sort of guilt or shame-driven sense of I've got to fix me or I've got to fix you or I've got to fix the world. It has a very different feeling quality when it comes in that way. It's much more a sense of not, not coming out of aversion to or the wish to avoid that which is painful or distressing or difficult, but out of a willingness to be with it. The response comes quite naturally. And the, uh, the words of the Zen monk and poet Ryokan, who's one of my favorite sort of uh, characters from the sort of the Zen world, sorry, not just the Zen, but the whole Dharma world. He, he lived in the, uh, the 18th century and was a bit of a hermit and was known for both remarkable poetry and uh, also his enjoyment of playing games with the children, which uh, much to the chagrin of, of the local villagers who thought that Zen monks were supposed to be serious. But he... He wrote in one of the lines of his poems, he says, Oh, that my monk's robe were wide enough to gather up all of the suffering beings in this floating world. And something about that sense of, oh, that my monk's robe were wide enough, that sense of, could I just open my heart or my life or, in this case, my clothing and just gather these beings up the suffering beings in this floating world, this world of things that are constantly changing and shifting. 
and in how the not understanding of that, so much entanglement, so much struggle, so much dukkha. So there's that sense of wanting to open, to include all, but also knowing that, actually also, (coughs) excuse me, but my robe may not be so wide. Maybe it's not possible to take on all of that. Maybe even just with ourselves, there's a time and a point at times for sure, for all of us, where we recognize, actually, I need to just pause now. It's actually not helpful anymore to stay with the place of rawness or tenderness or difficulty. I need to back off and find some resource, find some sense of well-being. And we've talked about that process of being able to touch what is difficult or tender and then actually move away and find out what's easeful or steady or clear for us and to resource and reconnect in that regard, not as a withdrawal from, but as a recognition of the need for balance. So there's not a prescription being offered here. There's an invitation and a direction that needs to be profoundly sensitive and respectful, in fact, to ourselves. And it's really okay to know when that's enough and I need to step back. It's also a place in which when we come to the, in a way, what we might call our limits, where it's really important to have compassion for ourselves, to recognize that actually sometimes we can't do it all right now. I remember um, just reflecting on, we were talking about uh, being in Asia earlier this afternoon and uh, just remembering my early in Counters with the people living in, in some situations, in incredible poverty in Asia and in India, particularly where I spent quite some time traveling and feeling in that sense of really wanting to give as much as I could to these people, really wanting to help these poor people. And I didn't have a lot. I was, you know, just a kind of a bit of a bum on the road in a sense, trying to live on not very much. But I could see that I had so much more than these people. They had so little. And I felt like I really could just give all that I have to something to help them. And I could go back home and I could work for a couple of years and save up some money and then I could do exactly what I'm doing, no problem. And it was really striking and difficult to see that I couldn't do that. It's like, oh, actually I'm too attached. I really can't let go here. And I, I'm not saying that as a judgment from this perspective. It's more like just seeing, oh, it's actually painful to recognize sometimes our own limitations. And just to be able to say, okay, just I'll do what I can here. To do what we can is, uh, is really what we're asked to do here with regard to ourselves, with regard to the world. I was back in India just uh, the beginning of this year, first time in 16 years. I'm, I'm quarter Indian, actually. My grandmother, who's Bengali from Calcutta, she's turning 100 this year. So I wanted to go and spend some time with her. Um, and there where I first met her um, when I was about 25 years old. And uh, while I was there, I also took the opportunity to go and spend a little time in Budgaya, 
which is the, uh, the, the village and now town really that grow, grew up around the, the site of the, the Buddha's awakening and the tree that is the, the relative or the direct descendant of the tree that was there at the time of his awakening. And it was 16 years since I'd last been in India. And one of the things that I'd always kind of felt somehow incomplete, but in another way I'd kind of given up on in my life, was that there'd been a beggar there in Budgaya. And I'd been many times to this village, and I'd always been touched by somehow his presence. He was severely crippled. His, um, from Basically, neither of his legs were functional at all. I think he was a... Well, I know he was a, he was a polio victim. I didn't know that then. But um, it was pretty easy to guess. I just wasn't sure. And I'd always felt like, I wish I could do something for this guy. He seems to be so full of light and presence when so much of what was around was this more desperate, fearful, um, and tragically um, contracted condition for most of the people, understandably, living as beggars in a very difficult condition. And I kind of thought... He's probably dead. How could he have lived another 16 years? He was already older than me then. <laughs> and I'll probably never see him again. And there was always just this little sadness in my heart. But I, I never really could do that much for him. You know, I'd give him a little food, a little money, but you can't give him a lot of money. It just causes chaos. And when I walked into the village square, he was there. I was like, what? <laughs> How could he still be there? How could he have survived? And then again, I felt this real sadness in me. It's like, and there's still nothing I can really do for him. And it was a very interesting moment for me because I went and sat and I looked at him and I don't know that he remembers me, you know. We spent a little bit of time together over the years, but he must see many people. And then I had this thought, and it's really interesting. At the New Year's retreat here, at the end of the year, um, which I teach and have taught now for quite a number of years, we take a moment to make, make a, um, an intention, an aspiration for our life. And everyone has the opportunity to do this in a kind of ceremonial way. And for myself, I'd taken the intention to ask for help. And I'd written it on a little piece of paper. And I'd probably forgotten about it by then. I didn't certainly have that in my mind when I was sitting down with this with this man. And I suddenly thought, you know, I can't do anything. I can't even talk to him. We don't have a shared language. But maybe I could ask someone to help me. And I asked a local Indian person who could speak English. And I actually had a conversation with him for the first time. I've known him for a quarter of a century. I actually had a conversation through an interpreter. I found someone who was actually willing to go with me and him back to his village. And I met his family and found out that's why he's actually such a beautiful soul. He's not on his own. He actually has a, a sister who cares for him. But they're poor. And so I was able to give them a, a little bit more help than I could otherwise have done. And it was a really interesting thing, that sense of there's nothing I can do here. And yet, sometimes we have to ask for help in finding that compassionate response and seeing that what we can do collectively is more than we can do by ourselves. Our world and our life asks us to come together in this, it seems to me. We need to find a way to respond. It's deeply painful and ultimately destructive to 
to our hearts, to our well-being, if we do not listen to that inner call, even if it is quiet, that says, actually, I care and I want to help. And the thing to know here is that doesn't mean grand gestures. I, I spoke in one of the small groups a few days ago of something for me that was incredibly inspiring that happened um, at a retreat at Gaia House, um, I think maybe 10 years ago now. Someone came on the retreat, did their first weekend retreat, spent two days meditating as we've been doing. And at the end of it, decided to quit their job, sell their business, take all their worldly possessions and cash them up and go to China. And in China, start a soup kitchen and to feed poor people and starving people in a place where the culture was that you shouldn't feed poor people. It only encourages them to be poor. And he started an amazing organization. And it's something ongoing and remarkable. Just, I'm not setting this up as a blueprint. <laughs> For each of us, it happens in different ways. But that sense of, we can, sometimes that's what we think. That's what compassion looks like. And, well, I'm not doing that. I've got to look after my kids or I've got to, you know, got to take care of my retirement or my whatever it is. And yet there is always something we can do. There's always a response that's possible for us. And there's just another story I'd like to share because I find the stories, again, they, they speak to this territory for me very clearly. And so on these early trips to India I mentioned before, um, on one occasion I was with a friend in Calcutta and we decided to visit the, uh, the orphanage run by the Order of Mother Teresa, the, I think Sisters of Charity or Mercy or something of that order, anyway, um, called Shishi Bhavan, which means children's home. And we went there and we were told as we came in, this is another um, chap and myself, we were told actually men aren't allowed to volunteer here. You can't come and work at this place. It's just a cultural thing in India. Men don't work with young children. Um, there's, I think, some... Well, more could be said about that, but that's just how it was. And so we were told, you can come and visit for a couple of hours, if you'd like to. And we went in. And first of all, all these young boys who hardly ever got to see men and they were, oh, uncle, 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 very delightful, very beautiful, just sense of young voice. And we went into the room where the babies were. And there were so many babies, mostly orphans whose parents had died, or children, babies whose parents were too poor to feed them, who'd been left, who'd been brought, who'd come to the orphanage. It was a room larger than this hall. It was full of cots, and each cot were two beds. Between the cots, there were three or four nuns, the, the sister, sisters of the order, and they were moving quickly and purposefully amongst the children. We could see as soon as we walked in, they either had a feeding bottle or they had a wiping cloth. And they were either feeding them or cleaning them. And the little beings in the room, they looked up as we walked in. And some of them reached their arms up, and some of the older ones, they're probably aged up to maybe 18 months, started to pull themselves up on the side of the cot and looked at us. And my friend and I, we, we, we turned to each other and immediately we both knew what was going on here. The nuns had time, just enough time to get round the children, feeding them and cleaning them. And they didn't have time to pick them up and hold them. 
And so we just went into that room full of little babies and started picking them up and just holding it. And it was like a limpet. You know, these little <laughs> beings, they knew what they wanted. It was just like, and just holding it, just feeling this little life. And then there's a room full of these little babies. So peeling it off, putting it down, picking up another one. And we went for two hours through that room. And we didn't actually even pick up all the babies once. And at the end of the time, we had to leave. And it was a really important lesson for me. It was heartbreaking to feel the immensity of need for just that simple contact of holding. There was part of me that was saying, you know, you could give up any other idea of a life and spend your whole life doing this. And there's not another life that will be more meaningful, fulfilling, or beautiful for you. And I think that was probably true. It's not what happened, obviously. But there's some way in which that was so powerful. But it was also heartbreaking because we had to go. We hadn't even picked them all up. And yet there was something about having done, this is what we could do. And we did it. We didn't shy away from it and go, oh, well, that's just too much to take on. Which would have been possible. We could have turned around at the door and said, no, I'm not going in there. That'll be overwhelming. But somehow in that moment, it was possible. And that sense of opening ourselves and seeing what's possible here. Sometimes it's only a kind word or a moment's contact that we can offer. Sometimes it's more than that, much more. And whatever it is that we can offer, it's so important that we find ways to do so. And compassion isn't just the kindly, sort of nourishing, cherishing, nurturing kind of qualities that we might primarily associate with that. Compassion is equally expressed in the capacity of, of protection, of protectiveness. And there's an image the Buddha uses for one of the qualities of compassion, which is that the image of the, the mother, classically, or we could say the parent standing at the door, with their child in the room and coming towards them as someone who wishes to hurt the child. And the mother, the parent, very clearly, no way, you are not coming through that door. You are not going to harm this being. And there's a kind of a fierce compassion in that quality. Sometimes the Buddha's seen in this mudra, the hand like this. And in fact, the, the latest addition to the, uh, the range of uh, Buddha images that's striking here um, I'm not sure exactly when it arrived, but certainly in the last year, I think, the, the, the Buddha image out here, sitting with the hand like this. And the fearless mudra, it's called the Abhaya mudra, or fearless. It's not an aggressive position, but it's actually very clear. And it's, you know, it's universal as a cultural expression of stop. And it has a protective quality. Sometimes the Buddha is seen in this mudra. That capacity to stand up. And it's not just stop, but it's got a quality of kind of it expresses and access and sorry accesses the vertical axis. That's a bit of a tongue twister. It kind of brings us into contact with a sense of the vertical protective quality of uprightness. This is part of how it works if you 
play with it or explore it, and I've certainly spent some time with it myself. Sense of, and what it is to stand up. We know this expression in our language, in English at least, to stand up for. To stand up for what we care about. To stand up and to speak up, sometimes likewise, in the face of oppression, in the face of injustice, in the face of exploitation. This too is compassionate action. This too is called of us, is required of us. And I always find myself a little amused if one should go to a traditional monastery or temple in Asia and many places, though there's many places I haven't been, and the places where I have been, quite commonly, more commonly than not, at the entranceway to the temple or at the gates of the monastery, you find these kind of fierce-looking characters with teeth and claws and weapons sometimes, and you think... It's a Buddhist place. You know, it doesn't look like loving kindness. <laughs> and they're expressing this, this compassionate quality of the fierce protector that will stand up and protect against harm to that which is precious, that which is vulnerable, that which needs protecting. And learning to embody this quality too. So there's that kindly, gentle, caring, nurturing, nourishing sort of quality we often associate with compassion. But there's equally that fierce and fiery and determined commitment to stand up in response to what we see taking place in the world. And how we do that, of course, looks different for each of us. How we find ways to include that, to express that in our life looks different for each of us. But for me, it's really clear. If we don't listen to that movement in our heart, if we don't make that a priority, not the only priority perhaps, but certainly a central one, the transformation of our life, the liberation of our heart that we are interested in, is not supported as to go as deeply as it can. We need to take care of ourselves in this too. I was struck reading the account of a Zen monk who was also a very committed activist and working tirelessly in service for the welfare of others. And he said, you know, after some years of doing this, I've worked out that I need to spend seven years, sorry, seven days doing inner practice for every day I spend doing outer work. It's like we really need to take care of our inner work, that inner compassion of finding clarity, stability, kindness within is the necessary and crucial foundation for being able to engage in acts of kindness that are not self-sacrificing in a destructive way. To act in ways of courage that are not starting to be coming out of our anger towards perceived cause of what needs to be changed, but out of our care for ourselves and each other, for all of life. To not ignore one's own needs in the belief that only serving others is what is important. To not ignore the needs of others in the belief that just serving myself or what I call me and mine is what's important. I was teaching in uh, Israel recently, and um, it's a complicated situation. It really is. 
and I spent most of the time in, in Israel, but I also had the opportunity to spend a little time in the West Bank, in the Palestinian city of Bethlehem, and teaching there. And that sense of, wow, this is really difficult. There's no easy answer here. But if we make one side more important than the other, it becomes a problem. And one of, the, one of the students on the course said, but don't I need to take care of my family first? Isn't that my first commitment? And of course, what happens when everyone's taking care of their family is that someone else's family isn't getting looked after. And there's all the families over here taking care of my family, and all the families over there taking care of theirs. And they're all families. And my response there ultimately was, well, absolutely, but what's your family? You know, there are these circles we draw around this body as perhaps this one, primary responsibility, absolutely, and those close to us, absolutely. Our family, our friends, but actually our family includes all of this life. All of this is where we came out of. We need to take care of all. If we do not serve the well-being of all of life, ultimately we cannot serve in the deepest way, the well-being of any part of life, including the part we call me and those we call mine. And so our practice needs to be for the benefit of all beings, for the welfare of all of life, for existence itself, in a way, we could say, because all life comes out of even that which appears not to be alive, and yet, if we don't take care of the water and the earth equally, Everything that grows in the water and in the earth and in the air is equally not taken care of. How can we not take care of all of this? And imagine that we could take care of our family or ourselves, Just as the hand is not separate from the foot, so too our lives are woven so deeply into the lives and the existence of everything that we have to see it from that perspective. And then within that sea, what's possible for me? And it may, as I said, be small gestures, small responses, just a kind word or even a smile to a homeless person sitting in a doorway in the city. Or even just allowing oneself to wish them well, not even sure we want to make eye contact with them. But just let ourselves know that, you know, There, as they say, but for the grace of the Buddha, (laughs) go I. (coughs) So I'd like to finish with a a further quote from Shantideva's vow. Chapter 3 of the Bodhicharya Vatara. He says... May I be a guard for those who are without protection, a guide for those who journey on the road. For those who wish to go across water, may I be a boat, a raft, a bridge. May I be an island for those who yearn for landfall, and a lamp for those who long for light. For those who need a resting place, may I be a bed, and for all who need a servant, may I be a slave. May I be the wish-fulfilling jewel, the vase of plenty, a word of power and the supreme remedy 
May I be the trees of miracles and for every being the abundant cow. Like the great earth and the other elements enduring as the sky itself endures. For the boundless multitude of living beings, may I be the ground and the vessel of their life. Thus for every single thing that lives, vast in number like the boundless reaches of the sky, may I be their sustenance and nourishment until they pass beyond the bounds of suffering. Without conceiving what that might look like, without having some idea or belief about what should be done, listening to and trusting our heart's responsive capacity, being guided with sensitivity, we can find our way to make our life an offering in the service of all beings, in the service of all of life. And this is the fulfillment of our heart and our life. Nothing less. So let's just sit together quietly for a few minutes, a few moments. So again, thank you for your practice and for your presence right here. Please continue. Time for walking, standing, or perhaps just being in the midst of it all. And we'll come back together again at uh, quarter to nine. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.